a lot of depth to them. There are some sermons that I know are weightier than other sermons, and that's going to be this sermon today. Um, Look, there are just some texts in the Bible that are just easier to navigate, um, and some that when we read them, they just support themselves. And then there are these, like Ephesians 6, 1, 1 and 1, when it tells us that we need to dig a little bit deeper into what this text is saying so that we can see the truth of the text. And so that's what we'll be doing is as we've been working through Ephesians, we worked through four, five and six. Now we're jumping back to chapter one to really hit some some really, really um, deep doctrine and theology today. I'm excited about it. So remember when Paul is writing this letter to the church at Ephesus. He is writing this letter not just specifically to them, but more than likely, he is writing this letter to multiple churches. The main reason he was writing these letters is because there were false teachers that had infiltrated those churches. And so what Paul wanted to do is more than give them anything new, he wanted to reaffirm for them the doctrines and the theological um, perspectives that they should have had the whole time. And that's what Paul is doing here. And I think it is important for us as Christians to see that we cannot divorce our Christianity from sound doctrinal and theological truth. We cannot do it. I remember uh, about two or three months ago, I had a conversation with a man who leads the urban division of a youth ministry in Birmingham. And in that conversation, he told me, well, I'm an evangelist, so I don't really need to be doctrinal or theological. And I'm sure he could see the uh, confusion on my face because there is no admirable task when you say that I'm just a Christian. I'm not doctrinal or theological. Listen, theology is what we know about God, what we think about God, what we practice in our lives according to what God has said, and is what we say about God. That is what the Bible does. The Bible has formed for us systematic theology to tell us what to believe. And so if you are a Christian in here who feels like you don't need to know theology or understand doctrine, then you're selling yourself short. We have to know what we believe. How in the world are we expected to lead people to Christ when the way that we lead them, the Bible tells us, is that they hear the word of God. If I hear the word, if I'm communicating to them the word, then I must know what that word infectually and effectually says. I have to be able to communicate that to them. Every one of us. Now, I'm not saying everybody in here needs to have an MDiv. I'm not saying everyone in here needs to go to seminary and needs to ruminate all day long about the recesses of their mind and how depth they're thinking about God is. Maybe you can just save that for the theologians. But I do think that we all should have a cogent and coherent understanding of what the word of God says about God. More importantly, we need to understand what the word of God says about God and God's relationship with us. Unfortunately, many times we have a false idea of who God is and our relationship with God, mainly because we don't want to be deep. We don't want to be theological. But unless you read the word, there's theology all through it. And so what we want to be able to do is today specifically understand the nature of our our relationship with God in reference to our salvation. For some reason, this has been one of the most confusing doctrines for people um, in Christianity and outside of Christianity. 
And I'm a big believer that oftentimes what we do is we read the Bible, we see what it says, but we don't want to believe that it's actually saying what it is in fact saying. And so, again, what we know about God affects everything. It affects what we believe, what we practice, and what we say about him. And so today I want us to open up our hearts, our minds, and our ears and see the beauty of our blessed salvation. Knowing that we have all, in fact, who are Christians, who are saved, been chosen by God. And that is today's sermon title. Go with me, if you will, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 1. Again, this is Paul writing. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I love the way that Paul writes. Paul opens this letter up with a magnificent but subtle reminder of who he is and where he stands with God. He says, I am Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, an apostle of God, according to the will of God. What he's saying is that he is a he is a he is an apostle because God saw fit according to his will to allow Jesus, the son, to reveal himself to Paul on the road to to Damascus. Remember, not only did he reveal himself, but the Bible says that Paul was so angry that even in the moment that Jesus Christ found him, remember, Jesus found him. Paul didn't find Jesus. None of us do. But even in the moment that Jesus finds him. The Bible says Paul was still breathing murderous threats. That is who he in fact was. He was a persecutor of Christians. And see, what he is making it clear for us to understand is that the only way you become an apostle is according to the will of God. You cannot make yourself an apostle, nor can man make anyone else an apostle. Therefore, we can make the conclusion based on the word of God that there were 12 apostles and no more. And they laid the foundation of the New Testament church. We know that. The Bible tells us that. He then goes on to commend God and our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word Paul uses here to get to to commend God is the same word that we use for eulogy. So he stands up and as he's writing his letter, he's commending God. He's praising him. He's celebrating him because of his providential grace. And then he says to him, who has provided every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places or in the heavenlies. This is a reference to every aspect of God's grace and providence comes absolutely from the heavenly realm. It comes from God's heavenly domain. Why is that important? I know you're asking. Well, let's look at the text. Paul points out that he is an apostle because it is the will of God. He then says that we have we have been included. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing from God. That is up to and including God's divine salvation. 
How do we know that? Paul says it. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We must see this as the case. But, but we must also see it as a blessing from God. And so the first thing, the first point that I want you to be able to grasp today is that election is not a curse. It is a blessing. It is a blessing. What is election? Now, if you come to this church for any amount of time, you've probably heard me make a reference to the word election or make reference to the doctrine of election. But I want to take some time and work through it and make sure that we are all clear about what we believe based on what the Bible tells us to believe. The doctrine of election is the biblical principle that God sovereignly and divinely chooses those whom he wants to save. It is the will of God to save whomever he will save. Now, that is not arbitrary, and I could literally spend an hour just telling you about the doctrine of election, but it is confirmed all throughout Scripture that God selects and chooses whom he wants to save. Paul reminds us in Scripture that he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. It is up to God whomever he will save. That is what the doctrine of election is. Now, there are many, many denominations and reformations that reject this very notion. For many, for many, many people, they are uncomfortable with our salvation being solely in the hands of God. They feel like that puts too much responsibility on God to save us. And it takes all the responsibility out of our hands to save ourselves. You're exactly right. See, the only opposite can be if, I, if God is not responsible for our salvation, then that means that we are responsible for our salvation. More importantly, if our salvation isn't in the hands of God, then it means that it was in our hands the whole time. That cannot be the case because we are unable to save ourselves. If there were one person in here who was capable of saving themselves from the wrath of God that was to be poured on them, then Jesus is null and void. Because that is what Jesus did. He took the wrath of God that was intended for us, the wrath that should have been poured out on us for eternity, and he took it in a day. So the only opposite thing could be true is that if God is not responsible for saving us, then that means I was responsible for saving me from my sins. You see how that doesn't make sense? See, that is what we are talking about. The God of the universe who called everything to be in existence. The God who counted Abraham as righteousness. The God who delivered Daniel. The God who took up Enoch. The God who called Matthew. The God that chose Peter. The God that rose Jesus from the dead. And the God that woke you up this morning is the one that chose you. I don't know about you, but those are capable hands to me. That's who we are talking about. If your salvation isn't his responsibility, then it has to be yours. And if your salvation is your responsibility, then, friends, please understand this. We would never be saved. We cannot save ourselves. The doctrine of election is painted all throughout Scripture. 
And because of our own futility and because of our own reason, we veil our eyes from seeing that God did, in fact, choose us. But Paul makes it clear. He says he chose us. Not only does he make it clear, but Jesus makes it clear. He says, for you did not choose me. I chose you. Because there is no righteousness, righteousness in us apart from Jesus Christ that would even make us look upon him. Not only does he tell us that he chose us, but the beautiful part about it is, is he tells us when he chose us. He tells us, in fact, when we were chosen, God chose us before the foundation of the world. That is immaculate, all right? And I can't even conceptualize it with my own human reasoning. And the only reason I believe it is because the Bible tells me to believe it. He chose us, every single one of us who are Christians. He chose us before the foundation of the world. God has shown us his favor and love since before the beginning of time. And we know that he chooses us not based on our goodness, not based on our righteousness, but he does so based on his goodness and his righteousness. Isn't that beautiful? Because if God had to wait around for me to be righteous in order for me to be saved, then God would still be waiting. Let's look at what God says in the book of Deuteronomy. And it's extremely important. And many times I hear many preachers say things like, well, we don't need the Old Testament or we don't need the Old Testament truth or the law, the biblical truth there. But unless we know the Old Testament, we can't believe what the New Testament says. Without the new, without the Old Testament, we don't know that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Messiah that is revealed to us in the Old Testament. We can't just focus our eyes on the text that we understand. Our responsibility as Christians are to understand and know as much about God as we possibly can. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples. Look, God makes it clear here when he is making his covenant with Israel. Why did he choose him? The Bible says he says it is because he set his love on them. He took his love and he fixed it on them. But then he even goes further and says, but it wasn't because of who you were. It wasn't because you were the strongest There were other tribes that were stronger. It wasn't because you had more people. There were other tribes who had more people. In fact, you were the fewest. Yet I set my love on you and I've chosen you. See, we can't understand it, but unless you see that God's election and God's choice is the product of his sovereign grace. 
Those are two words. Sovereign, his all control, and God is in all control of everything at all times. And his grace, which means he bestows and gives us the amount of aptitude that we do not have. He does. He gives us what we have not earned. He gives us what we do not deserve, what we cannot work for, what we cannot merit. That is the definition of God's grace. And you can't divorce his grace from his sovereignty because he is sovereign in control. He chose whom he chose to be saved. Now, we have to see being chosen by God forces us to see his grace. Why is that? We know that he sees nothing in any of us that was worth saving. He sees nothing in any of us that was worth us being chosen. There's a saying that says, when I look at myself, I can't see any way I could possibly be saved. But when I look at Jesus Christ, I don't see any way I could possibly be lost. That is the grace of God. Now, many people have referred to God's choice of us as a mystery and have said that they don't understand why he chooses whom he chooses. And the only way I can put it is God chooses whom he chooses because it most glorifies him. That's why. Whatever God does, God does so because it most glorifies him. And there are some people say, well, that answer is not enough. Well, I'm sorry. If that answer is sufficient, then you're missing who God is at all. God's chief concern has been what glorifies him. But because what glorifies him, it brings salvation to us. It glorified him. It was the will of God to bruise his son. To crush him. But why did he do it? Because somehow our salvation, as filthy as we are, absolutely glorifies God. Now, the Bible also tells us that the wisdom of God, which that is, is folly and foolishness to man. Because we can't comprehend him. And so, if we miss out on that fact, we miss out on the beauty of being chosen by God. God has chosen every single one of us who's a Christian in this room because he loves us. That is why. It goes back to our foundational verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that whoever will believe on him will not perish, but will inherit eternal life. Listen, we are not special. We are not distinct. We are not good or godly, but his love literally usurped our sinful nature. The mark of a Christian is not boastful arrogance about being the elect, but it is humble submission. Because as John Stott says, the closer we get to a holy God, the darker and deeper and more sinful we see ourselves. The closer we get to God, we should not feel more proud about ourselves, but we should marvel in our minds that he would save us at all. 
we totally see how undeserving we are. If anything, God's love puts us in awe of who he is. Our salvation is solely up to the will of God and the work of Jesus Christ. Scripture is full of this explanation. Peter says in his epistle that God caused us to be born again. He made it happen and it was the will of God. And we see that Jesus affirms this truth. Let's look at John 17 and 1. John 17 and 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have already given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is such a beautiful account of Jesus' prayer before his crucifixion. But there are some amazing things that we have to pull out of this text. He says that God the Father has given God the Son the authority over all flesh. And not only has he given him authority over all flesh, but he's given him the authority to save those whom God had already given to him. Does that make sense? Everyone who will be saved, your name, whether you are saved in this moment or you will be saved, but everyone who will be saved, your name is already in the Lamb's book of life. That is beautiful because when we, while we were yet sinners, as the Bible tells us, Jesus Christ died for us. If it wasn't for that death, we would have remained sinners. There are people at the time of his death, every name that would be written has been written. And that means that whenever you are saved, it is not a shock to God. It is not a surprise to God. It was according to his divine timing. He was waiting on you to catch up. That's the beauty of our salvation. God is not walking around with some holy eraser to erase your name out when you make when you mess up. If he saves you, then you are saved, signed, sealed and delivered. Amen. So he says that if there is any confusion, this is eternal life that they know you and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, who causes us to be born again. God the Father through His will. Listen, everybody has a hang up about man's free will. Like, how much free will do I have? You're telling me that that sounds like I didn't have a choice if I wanted to be saved or not. That makes it sound like I'm in prison. You're concerned about your free will. What about God's free will? How can you, Clay, look back to the potter and say, Thou has made me wrong. You can't answer him that. Because he's sovereign and he's all powerful and he is all in control. Not only did he choose us, but he didn't have to wait for us. When does scripture say he chose us? That's point two. He chose us before the foundation of the world. 
He chose us before the foundation of the world. This directly coincides with Jesus' sacrificial death because the Bible also tells us that he's the lamb slain when? Before the foundation of the world. That means before Adam and Eve even conceived to think of sin, before the breath of life was breathed into their bodies, guess what? He knew every single one of us whom he would save. Because as far as God is concerned, we were already saved. Because he chose us before the foundation of the world. God's choice of us happened before the world was, was created. And just as he told prophet Jeremiah that he knew him before he was formed in his mother's womb, he consecrated him and he appointed him as a prophet. Before the foundation of the world. That means that when God spoke light into existence, he was thinking about you. When he etched the stars into their space and he gave every single one of them a name, he had already chosen you. He was thinking about you. When God spoke light into existence, you were racking his mind. Before he filled the canvases below with water, he saved you. He had already accomplished it. So your, your salvation, again, was not a mistake or a surprise. God had already planned it out. He even qualifies his choice. He said that we have been chosen to be holy and blameless before him. I was bringing this up to a student or a class that I teach in Bible just this past week. And one of the students could not grasp her mind around the doctrine of election, which is understandable. I can't grasp my mind around it. I just know that the Bible says it. So I believe it and I preach it. But in that moment, she says, but what if I do all this stuff? What if I do all this stuff and I'm not one of the elect? And I told her, you wouldn't do any of that if you weren't. Simple as that. Your election produces the evidence, the fruitful evidence of that election. There are no counterfeits that are legitimately producing any fruit. They are pretending to do so, but they aren't. But more than anything, there is no real conviction in any counterfeit that they aren't the elect. Most of us are worried, am I the elect? Am I the elect? Are you in Christ? Is he in you? If he is, then fine, you're one of the elect. If he isn't, you still may be. But don't count on it. So not only did he call us, but he has sanctified us in his calling of us. I know some may wonder why I'm harping on this, but it's imperative that you see that everything we think about God is boiled down to how we think about our salvation. Every little thing. Either we chose God or God chose us, but it's not both. It is not both. Both. Now, a lot of you, I know you're thinking this because some of y'all are Bible scholars in here. You say, but I know, I know that Joshua says, choose you this day whom you will serve. And I would say, you are absolutely right. That scripture does say that. But you are absolutely wrong in its context. 
So what was Joshua actually talking about in that scripture? Let's just go to it. Joshua 24 and 14. So that if anybody ever says, but, but the Bible says that we, we, we got to choose this day who we going to serve. And they make a reference to the scripture. Now you're going to have the context. And once I actually read it, you're going to hear it anyway, but I'm explaining it. John, Joshua 24, 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Verse 15. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the, the river or the gods of the Amorites in the land whose you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Do you see it? You see what that scripture was actually talking about? Joshua's admonishing them. Either you are going to serve the Lord your God or you got a choice between false gods because you can choose them. But you can't choose God. And so he's saying either accept who God is and what God has done or choose from the only viable options that you have. See, we can choose from gods that don't really exist. That's easy. It's like going to the store. Which one am I going to pick today? But if God has chosen you, it's because he has set his love on you. Not because you set your love on him. So again, either God is responsible for choosing us or we are responsible for choosing him. He chose us before we had any consciousness of who he is. It is not based on works, for if it were, then we would have something to boast about. Notice the scripture on the banners. The reason we don't have anything to boast about is because it is a gift. It is a gift from God that we did nothing to earn. Nothing at all. But again, it's confirmed in Scripture, Romans 9 and 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, which means they had no works. In order that the purpose of, uh, uh, the, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Your salvation is not based on your works and is not based on prescient choice. What does that mean? It's not based on who he knows you will become. It is based on him who calls. He makes the call and he makes the choice. Paul goes further in confirming this by saying he predestined us. This is one of the most controversial words in the Bible, but just in case you're not looking, it's in the Bible. More importantly, when I looked up the Greek for the word predestined, it means to appoint according to foreknowledge. He has predestined us. This literally means that he appointed us or made known our election before we were born. I don't know how anyone could have a problem with this. God loved us so much that he's been weaving together our salvation since before the worlds were even formed. That's how long he's been putting it together. Romans 8 and 29. For those whom he foreknew, 
He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, guess what? He also glorified. Look at what it says here. He foreknew us, and because, of he, because he has foreknowledge, he predestined and appointed us to be conformed to the image of Jesus. He doesn't stop there, though. But for those of us whom he has predestined, whom he has appointed, whom he has, he has also called, the basis of our salvation is that he has called us. And by calling us, he has justified us. By justifying us, he looks at us, knows that we are guilty, pretends that we are not, and declares us as innocent and righteous. How can you have a problem with this? Without this doctrine, there is no salvation. He saw the tag that was assigned to us and he overlooked the price and declared us worthy. That is the God we are talking about. Finally, not only has he foreknown us, predestined us, and just predestined us and justified us, but he has also glorified us. This glorification speaks of future glorification. When the Bible tells us not only when we will we see him as he is, but the Bible tells us, one, we're going to get glorified bodies, but we will look and be just like him. I don't know about you, but without the doctrine of election, we don't get glorification. And I don't know about you, but I need it. Because I'm tired of this body of death. Who will free me from it? Nobody. But Jesus Christ will free us from the dying body that we are living in. But one day, this soul will be snatched out of this body and we will see him face to face. And everything we knew about him, everything we read about him will be revealed to us and we will not be clothed with flesh. And all of this will make sense in the by and by. And I don't know about you. Yes, I want to be free from this world. But more importantly, I want to be with him. I don't care about the mansions. The mansions are great. I don't care about the road. I can't wait to see him. Because I've read about him. I've heard about him. I've preached about him. And we sung about him. He better be there when I get there. Huh. Finally, point three. We've been adopted. We have been adopted. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to, pr- to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The significance of this scripture cannot be bypassed or overlooked because we have been predestined for adoption. What is the nature of this adoption? We were born apart from God. One, because of our sin, but also because we were born as Gentiles. We were not born in the family according to the Abrahamic covenant. We were not the chosen people. Israel was the chosen people. That wasn't us. 
But in the new covenant, however, we have been grafted into the family as if we were Israel in the first place. See, this is why circumcision was such a big deal for the Judaizers because their expectation, because they weren't actually Christians, their expectations is, were that the only way you would actually have a relationship with God is that you had to be, become culturally and ethnically a Jew. And so you needed to be circumcised and you needed to completely adhere to the law in order to be accepted about God, of God and be included in the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. That's why Paul said, listen, if you are preaching to people that they need to be circumcised in order to have a relationship with God, then you make Christ of no effect. See, circumcision for them is what baptism is for us. It is the co- it is a sign of the covenant, but it's not the cause of it. As a result of our salvation, the sign of our covenant is baptism. As a result of the Abrahamic covenant, their sign was circumcision. But it's not the cause of the covenant. The Bible says that he counted us in the covenant. He counted us in. But look at what Paul says in Romans 9, 3. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. That means you don't have to be ethnically Jewish in order to be counted into the Abrahamic covenant because the one who came through the covenant, namely Jesus Christ, has saved us. And it is because of his blood that we are included into the covenant. Paul says here that he wishes that he could be accursed and cut off, said that his Israelite brothers could be saved because they were denying Jesus Christ as the son of God. He says that to them belong the adoption, the glory, and all the attributes for having been chosen by God. They were God's elect people. He even says that through their race, not only do we get patriarchs, but we get Christ, the very person that they were rejecting. But with all that he counters it, and he says that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel because they are rejecting the truth. He says it is not merely that you have the bloodline, but you must also have the blood. See, we have something greater than just the bloodline. We have the blood of Jesus. He then says something spectacular. It says, it is not those who are of the flesh, but those who are of the promise. We are those children. We are the children of the promise. Now Israel was, and I think still remains, God's chosen people. 
when he made a covenant with Abraham, it was an everlasting covenant. Paul says in Ephesians that not only have we been predestined, but he predestined us for adoption. And so in the new covenant, he considers us as his people. I do not believe we have replaced Israel because we read in scripture about Israel's ultimate salvation. But I do believe that as Paul said, all we have, all we who who believe are the children of God. That is why Paul tells us in Romans that we are the sons of God because we are led by the spirit. And finally, last scripture, Peter sums it all up. First Peter two and nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people from his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Last thing I'll say is that in a world where every church wants to be multicultural, in a world where we are forcing ourselves to adapt and bend and blend, because there's nothing wrong with having a multi-ethnic church, but we are to have one culture, and that is the culture of Christ. What does Peter say? He says before, you were not a race. You thought you belonged to a race of people. Before, you were not to any people. You belonged to no race. But now, I've made you one people. A royal priesthood. A chosen race. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. To declare his majesty, his beauty, and his glory. That is the beauty of God choosing us. Before he chose us, we were scattered abroad. We were at enmity with him, and we were at enmity with one another. But it is only because of God's sovereign and divine choice that he takes all of us who were not one people... And he makes us all one, chosen by him, to declare this truth about him. Let's pray.